Amen to that. His kingdom is here in the presence of his saints, and his kingdom is coming uh, when he appears one day. And the question really would be, are you ready for his appearance? And this is what Paul is going to address as we look at Romans chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, Romans chapter 2. It's good to be back. I want to thank Michael, Pastor Michael, who's here for speaking for me last week. It's always uh, comforting to, to, to know when I leave, we have great staff to bring the word of God. And uh, so I thank uh, Michael for preaching while I was uh, seeing my sister Marla in uh, Spokane. Um, she has three forms of ovarian cancer, uh, and she's at the final stages. And so it was a, it was a hard trip, but a good trip. Uh, it was interesting because that little window that I was there for four days uh, was the only time she was really lucid because I left Saturday afternoon with Liz to come back. And, uh, and, and Sunday, she was put into full-term uh, hospice care at a hospice house. So it was like God kept her just there for that one time. It was awesome. It was hard seeing her. She's lost about 100 pounds. Uh, but uh, she's a year older than me. And it was just a great time together talking, uh, learned a lot, uh, and uh, prayed a lot for her. Uh, we had a good time. But um, she's told me, uh, it's good to see me on this side. And she said, it's good to be good to see you on the other side, too. And uh, so I, yeah, I'm always mystified at a person who has not faith in Christ, how you deal with tragedy, because uh, you really have no hope, because hope comes from Christ. And, uh, and so we'll talk about that today, uh, the hope that you have as a believer, um, when you face those difficult things, um, how do you do it? Well, we do it with faith in the fact that uh, heaven awaits us. Um, and then, uh, so the, the, the trip went well, so I appreciate that. But continue to pray for Marla and Steve. Even as a terminal patient, she told me, where would I be if God's people did not pray for me? That's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, we came back, uh, and I started work again uh, on Monday. I was all excited because... I only had one more doctoral paper to, to write, and then I was done with all my doctoral work on apologetics uh, a month early. And uh, so I'd been working for several weeks while Liz was in, in California seeing the grandchildren. And I'd written and saved and written and saved, and I came back Monday to finish the couple, three pages of my paper, last paper, and it was completely gone. Yeah, all that was left was a skeletal outline, all the content was gone, and the conclusion was there. It didn't even have it saved on the last day I wrote on it all day. So if, if you're ever wondering where the devil is, <laughs> just go through those doors, hang a left, go in my office. I think he's inside my computer. So I had, you know, I was grieving my sister's situation. And then I came back thinking I'm going to finish the doctoral program this week. And then I had to rewrite that entire last paper. So I, I, I was not in the best of moods, I must say. Uh, but uh, so, but it was on Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science. So I can tell you a whole lot about her if you want to know about uh, her brand of theology. It's uh, very deceptive. So I, uh, it's been an interesting week. So uh, let's pray as we look at the scriptures. Father, we thank you for uh, the clarity uh, that scriptures give us, especially in a world that is confused about what ultimate truth is. Uh, much of our culture doesn't even understand ultimate reality. Uh, we thank you for just the, the fact that the scriptures draw a proverbial line in the sand and you never move that line. Uh, and uh, the dividing line is the cross of Christ, as we shall see. And might we be ones who know you, who uh, uphold the cross of Christ, and it's the answer to our broken world. And for those uh, among us today that haven't a clue as to what it means to walk with you, to know you, 
uh, might be clearly evident to them uh, today that they have a decision to make regarding eternity, uh, and that decision involves how they think about your son. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name, amen. 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus rode a uh, little donkey uh, into Jerusalem. Uh, he came in from the, the eastern little hamlet of Bethany, not, not too far from uh, Jerusalem. I've been in that area many times. It's a, it's a beautiful rolling hills uh, with a few little trees here and there as you approach uh, Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, you reach the final crest and you see the city below you and the Temple Mount. It's awesome. It's awesome. He rode that little donkey, and there was uh, thousands of people gathered uh, at that particular Passover week to receive Jesus. So the Jewish people were quite excited. Uh, there was two, two reasons why they were excited. Number one, uh, John tells us in John 12, verse 9, uh, that the people had assembled there to catch a glimpse, not of Jesus, but of Lazarus. Why? Well, everyone heard, that dude was dead. <laughs> Dude, it's a Hebrew word, dude. <laughs> he was dead. And everybody knows he was dead. I mean, my uncle was at the funeral. I, you know, my aunt was at the funeral. I know, I mean, we've interviewed him. We told him they were at the funeral. They saw the dead body. He was dead. What happened? You, you know what happened. What happened? He was resurrected. I mean, Christ waited till he was really dead. And then he came and just spoke to the tomb. And uh, there way he was. He went from heaven back to earth, and God resurrected him, uh, and everybody wanted to see Lazarus, and I'm sure they wanted to ask him a couple of questions. <laughs> I mean, if you knew somebody that had died and came back, I mean, really died, I mean, gone, in a tomb, burial shroud, the whole shebang. I mean, if, what would be like your first question? I was kind of wondering, did you go to the light? Did you see the light? I mean, what did you do? Were you in a long tunnel? Was it nothing? You know, wouldn't, did, wouldn't you have a few questions? Yeah, they, all, they, they wanted to at least see this man uh, that Jesus has raised. Now, that, now they're logical because they're thinking as well, from what we know of John, that not only do they want to see Lazarus, they want to see Jesus who did this. Because they think, they think it would run like this. Since he can raise the dead, what can he do to the Roman occupying power? Simple deduction. Why did they have uh, palm branches? I mean, you know, my last church in California, it was easy on Palm Sunday. We just walked in the parking lot, cut palm branches down, brought them inside the church. Everybody's like, oh, that's no big thing. You know, palm branches. What does that mean? Well, to get into the Jewish mindset, you have to understand the Jewish feast of Israel. And the feast structure uh, ends with the Feast of Tabernacles. According to Zechariah chapter 14, every Jew knew that was standing there that day with a palm branch, that when the Messiah returns... Uh, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and you lay down those uh, palm branches to welcome him. The only problem was they were skipping like some other feasts, like the Feast of Passover, that before you can get to the Tabernacles, the kingdom age, the Messiah must first come and die for the sins of the world. See, they wanted God on their terms, not on his terms. And Paul knows this. Paul understands, because he's from Jerusalem. He's from that area. He understands that that fickle crowd... Uh, screamed crown him at the beginning of the week and just uh, like seven days later were chanting crucify him because their faith was no faith. They, were, they, they believed that they would go to heaven because, well, I'm a Jew. I believe in the Torah. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, they were Jewish. I mean, our pedigree is Jewish. We're saved by definition of who we are and our allegiance to the Torah, to ritual, etc. All this saves us. Paul says, I used to believe that and that does not save you. He's writing to this uh, church in Rome 
to Jewish people as well as we see in chapter 2, to Gentiles in chapter 1, Jews in chapter 2, because the same snobbery that he saw in the triumphal entry that eventually turned on Christ when he, well, he wasn't what they really wanted, he sees that same concept when he talks to the Jewish church uh, members in the Roman church to tell them, I, I've picked up the same kind of snobbery that believes you're going to go to heaven just because you're a Jew and you believe in ritual and tradition and etc. He said, uh, I used to believe that erroneous thinking until I ran into Christ. But he's going to answer a question that we've been entertaining for a couple of weeks and it has been a, another Sunday looking at it. How does God respond to that morally religious person? Now, contextually, he's talking about a Jewish moral religious person. But the principle still applies today because the principle transcends time. Because our world is still full of people who would say, I should go to heaven because I'm, I'm basically a pretty good person. Or I should go to heaven because I'm religious. When I was in California uh, back in the mid-80s working on my uh, uh, degree at Dallas Seminary, I had to do an internship. So I went to San Diego. What a rough place to go for God. Um, <laughs> I went to Rancho Bernardo. And I did an internship at my parents' church. Had a great time. Uh, Dr. Eugene McAllister, uh, uh, he's the father of Dawson McAllister, the great youth speaker. Uh, he's like Josh McDowell to youth. And I, and I was uh, his dad's youth pastor that summer. They sent me out into the community with little pad questions to ask, and I had to do this evangelistic stuff door to door. Uh, knock on doors and ask them all these questions. And, you know, it was like, uh, if you were to die tonight, are you ready to meet God, blah, blah, blah. I cannot tell you how many people told me, I mean, almost to a door. Oh, well, I'll be in heaven because my grandmother was deeply religious or my great-grandmother was deeply religious. And I would say, are you deeply religious? Well, I'm religious, you know, but do you know Christ? Say, they're all going to heaven based upon, well, I'm deeply religious. But they didn't accept the Christ, which is why I was at the door to tell them about Christ. See, these are the Jews that Paul's writing to and he's telling them, you think you're going to heaven based on you're a Jew, your ancestry, but you must rethink this because people that go to heaven come by way of the ultimate Jew, Jesus. And this is what he's going to talk about because all the Jews at the Roman church, I'm sure as Paul wrote this uh, degradation of Gentilic sin in chapter one, every Jew was going, hey, preach it, brother. That's exactly a perfect description of Gentiles. And Paul says, no, you must consider yourself. It's easy to judge some other people. Paul says, you must turn and look at yourself as a moralist and ask, but do I really know the Messiah? We want to review because it's been a couple of weeks. I'm sure the brain cells have taken their toll on you. <laughs> what in the world is he doing? He's, he's, he's validating how God responds to those who are more religious people. Not like the evil sinners he described in chapter 1. These are the people that are pretty good, spiritually speaking, externally. Uh, to review verse 1, he's going to give them the reason for divine judgment upon them. He's going to say, you're going to be judged. And the reason is you should have known better. So any Jew should have been able to say, uh, I, I can spot the Messiah because all throughout the Old Testament, it tells me what he's going to be like when he arrives. And I can take a template and check all those things off. Is he from the tribe of Judah? Check. Was he born in the city of Bethlehem? Check. I can check all those things off and go, that's Jesus. But they rejected him, even though he fit the description perfectly as prophesied. So he says in verse one, you as a Jewish moralist, you're going to experience the divine judgment. The reason is you should have known better. Number two, verses two to four, we looked at his judgment. God judges when he judges the religious moralist person is always right. It's always perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. And what he said in verse four is most important. If you'll remember, uh, he says in verse four, let's read it again. He says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? What's that mean in our vernacular? He's telling them, 
you're taking the fact that God has blessed your life as a sign he approves of your life. No, he's only blessed you so that you might wake up to the fact that you need to turn to him in faith and put no faith in your ancestry and your traditions and your ritual. You have to stop and ask yourself, am I putting faith in my ancestry, my tradition, my moralistic behavior, or is my, my faith in Christ? That's Paul's argument. He says, if you do not come to God on God's terms, God judges. That's what he's going to talk about in verses 5 through 11. He says, God's going to su supply to you the, the road of divine judgment. It's going to come. It says in verse 5, but because of the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, he said, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What's he going to do on that day of wrath? Who will render to every man according to his what? Deeds. Deeds. If you do not trust Christ as Savior, his work on the cross for you, if you don't trust in that work by faith and, and find salvation, then you will be judged based upon your activity and that will be found wanting. That's what he's going to say. Verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for the glory and honor and immortality, they receive what he calls eternal life. But those, on the contrast, who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, he's speaking of the gospel and of the scriptures, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation is what they get. Then he says, there will be a tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and of the Greek but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? Well, with God, there's what? There's no partiality with God. He does not care who your mother was, who your father was, how religious they were or were not. He doesn't care how much money you're worth, how much money they're worth, where you lived, what your education is. When you stand before him, he says he's not going to care whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He just wants to know, what have you done with my son? You know, and thinking about my sister, that's really what matters. What have you done with Christ? And I can tell you what she's done with Christ. She served him all of her life in, in many ways. What have you done with your life when you come to the, the end of the, your life? Are you ready to stand before God? This is what Paul talks about. And you can say, well, it's not, it's not very positive. You're not talking very positive. This is our culture. It's not positive to talk about sin and judgment. And I make no apologies because if I do not warn you, then I'm accountable for not warning so I warn, but with the warning comes the glory of the gospel to prepare you. So Paul says, you, are, you, are, you have a stubborn heart, he says to these Jewish moralists, and your heart is also unrepentant. The problem in his culture, which is still the problem in our culture, and they still don't get it in our culture, the problem is not the activities that sinners are doing, it's the heart of the sinner. You can remove all kinds of things from our culture to try to find peace. It will not happen. Why not? Well, the problem is the heart. And what's the problem? He said, it's twofold. Your heart is stubborn. Not that anybody would understand this word here. Stubborn. <laughs> stubborn. What does that mean? Stubborn is a very interesting word. Uh, Paul says to the Jews of that church, uh, some of you are stubborn. And the word, I'll tell it to you in Greek, and you'll understand what it is in English. Uh, sclerotata. Sclerotata. Sclerosis. Sclerosis. Ever heard that word? Is that something that you want in your life? In your arteries? What is it? It's the hardening of something, like bone density, uh, arteries, etc. It's hardening. Josephus uses the word this way in Antiquities, chapter 3, verse 2, to talk about ground that is so hard, it's hard to dig in. And I was reading that in the Antiquities this week. I'm thinking to myself as a former landscaper, boy, I get that. Nothing like digging in great soil. You know, uh, my sister bought a house in Lodi, California, and I went up there to landscape it for her. Brand new home. And I... Uh, <laughs> 
I realized I, had, I was going to put in a sprinkling system for her. And I realized I couldn't even dig in the dirt. It was that hard. To put her fence post in, I had to rent an auger, two-man auger, and hold it and drill a hole for a fence post. I mean, don't tell me stuff like this is not spiritually instructive. <laughs> the whole time I'm putting her yard together, it's like it's from Satan. I mean, unbelievable. And I was kidding her last week when I was seeing her. Remember when I put that lawn in and it took me forever? You know, even with a trenching machine, it would hardly dig. You know, that's like some people's hearts. It is so hard. It has sclerosis. It has, it's spiritually hard that they hear the things of God. They don't want to do them. They reject them. And when they are hardened, they become even more hardened, such as our culture, stubborn. See, this is the history of Israel. Everybody who would have heard Paul say this word in, in, in chapter 2, verse 5, every Jew sitting there would have totally known, uh, I've heard that word before, because sclerosis, spiritual sclerosis was their problem. How do I know that? Because it's, it's used all through the Old Testament, how God describes his people. Would you like God describing you in such a fashion when he looks down upon you and says, well, you know, they're just stubborn. Exodus chapter 33 after the 10 plagues freeing Israel from bondage, parting of the Red Sea, you would think if you saw all these things and you weren't a believer, what would you do? I believe. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the 10, the 10 plagues, uh, yeah, the gnats, the frogs, the whole thing. Yeah, that, that, I, could, might, you know, I could, might argue around some of that. But the parting of the Red Sea, that did it for me. <laughs> Read verse 2. God says, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the holy land, the promised land. I'll drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I, God, will not go up uh, in your midst. Why? You're such an awesome people. <laughs> no, I won't go up with you. Why? Well, because you have sclerosis. Uh, you are a obstinate people lest I destroy you on the way. If I were to go with you, I would probably vaporize you. I'm so mad. <laughs> You're probably relating to this as a parent at this point in time. Because you have a child that is the strong-willed child. See, that's what God says is I, 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 I get what you're like. I say A, you say B. I say go there, you say go there. I say take this land, I'll be with you. No, we can't go. There's giants, they'll defeat us, etc. You, you have a hardened heart. That's their history. When you get to the, the uh, book of Kings, 2 Kings chapter 17, it catalogs the sins of Israel that brought down the 10 nations, uh, 10 tribal uh, confederacy in the north. Because the, the, the nation splits at 930 BC under taxation, under Rehoboam. When you get down to the end of the 10, ten the tribal confederacy in the north, Ephraim, northern Israel, uh, 2 Kings 17 details why they fell. And it likens their fall to being stiff in the neck. That God would send them a prophet and warn them of what was coming. And they would say, oh, he's so negative. And they would disregard him and worship what they wanted to worship. When you uh, see the fall of the nation in 2 Kings chapter 17, uh, 130 years later, uh, the two tribes in the south, uh, with the lead tribe being Judah, 130 years later, they fall. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is given the task of, of being the lone voice of truth in a culture that's just totally hardened to God. Chapter 19, no notice what it says. Verse 15, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I will bring upon this city, Jerusalem, all the evil that I have spoken against it. Why? Because they have become what? Stubborn and have not obeyed my voice. My words. Stubborn. Sclerosis. See, every Jew that listened to Paul writing Romans would have said, he was talking about the Gentiles in chapter 1. He's 
obviously talking about us in chapter 2. Because if any word describes us, it's that. We have been obstinate from day one. From 1446 B.C. until Jeremiah's day, 586 B.C., they had been obstinate. Obstinate. You got to ask yourself, just as a sidelight, am I obstinate to the voice of God in my life? I mean, all the things that he sent in my life to wake me up from my spiritual stupor, do I yawn at them? Do I mock them? Do I laugh at them? Do I push them off for another day? Obstinate. Obstinate. What happens if you're spiritually obstinate to God trying to knock on your heart's door to ask you, can't I come in? Well, if you're not obst- if you are obstinate, it leads next to the next word, which is un- unrepentant. You're unrepentant. If you're spiritually stubborn, the next thing that comes with it is you're not, you're not repentant. You don't want to repent. Paul says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, what happens when you become that way? You store up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You store up wrath. Every time you reject God in his way, every time you walk out of a sermon in here and say, that guy is totally, oh, no way. That's just no way that's going to happen. Every time you walk away from the, the clear teaching of the word of God, however that happens for you, uh, you store up wrath. Each person has a vault, as it were, what Paul says. And every time you reject God in his way, in his truth, in his gospel, you make a deposit. And one day God looks at your vault and says what? It's full enough of that. The word uh, to store up um, is a very interesting Greek word. Uh, Thesarizo is the word from which we get our word thesaurus. You ever use one of those in college? (laughs) You know, when you get that paper back from the English teacher, which happened to me, she's like, Martin, really nice paper, but you can't use this one word all through your paper. (laughs) Like, well, then what do I do? I mean, (laughs) you need a thesaurus. Like, what's that? You know, I was 18. I was clueless. That Roger, you got one? Yeah. Yeah. What's in there? More words than you ever use in a lifetime, right? And I would go through there and go, I want to use this word, but I want to use it again in, but in this paragraph, but I'll use that one. This is the word Paul uses. You store up wrath. There comes a day when they make a thesaurus where they get to the final word entry and they say as an editorial team, there's no more words to put in there. We can go, we can go to print. God says, spiritually speaking, you have a vault. And there comes a day when you deposited the last sin in there. And God says... That's enough. That's the day of the revelation of the wrath of God against those who've rejected him. Uh, it happened in John chapter 12 on the, on the triumphal entry of Christ. Verse 10, notice what happens. This is a triumphal entry. But the chief priests, the religious people, the spiritual people, they took counsel that day that they might put Lazarus to death also. Why? Well, they're jealous. It says because of on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Okay. That's what should have happened. The guy was dead, came back. Christ raised him from the dead, said he's the resurrection and the life. You think you would look at the incontrovertible evidence and come to know Christ as Savior and Messiah. What were they planning to do? He messes with our paradigm, how we do things. Let's eliminate Lazarus. We want to understand the darkness of a heart. That's the epitome of hardness. When you want to destroy the evidence instead of accept the evidence. What happened that day? The day they took counsel, they made deposits as chief priest into the vault of sin that when they would stand before God one day, his justice over them would be true because they had done this. Is it negative to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Because one day we will all stand before God in one of two ways. You either put treasure in heaven because you trust Christ as Savior 
or you stored up wrath for the day of wrath and you will be found wanting in that day. What, what side of the equation are you on? See, God waited from 1446 to 586 BC before he ever judged Jerusalem. So no man could say, God is so vindictive. He's so unfair. He waited from 1446 to 586 BC before he ever judged his people with captivity. I would say that's pretty patient for a holy God. What's that say to you? God is and will be patient to you. But there's always the day when he says, last deposit. What day will that be that he's talking about? Thinking minds want to know. Paul says you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. I mean, like thinking minds want to know, like, when is that? Because you have several options. I know you have options because I read the Bible. You have a couple options of when that day is. Uh, that day of wrath could be the day you die, because it says in Hebrews 9.27, uh, it, it is appointed man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So that could be the day of the wrath of revelation of God, that you die and you stand before God and give account. It could be that day. Uh, it could be at the close of the seven-year tribulation. When Jesus comes back, and according to Matthew 25, separates the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers, and the believers walk into the kingdom of the Messiah, the unbelievers are thrown into an eternity without God. You could say that's the day. You could, uh, option number three, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, Revelation 27 to 15 and following, you could say, well, at the end of the millennium, when the devil is released again to deceive the nations, to create chaos, and God destroys the devil and all of his minions and all of his followers, that's the day of the revelation of God. Yeah, that's the day of wrath. But then there's Revelation chapter, well, 20 verses 11 to 15. That's the fourth option. At the close of the millennium, when Christ brings the dead of all time before him, all lost, no believers, he has basically two questions. Is this person's name in the Lamb's book of life, the angel will look at the book and say, no entry. Well, then let's, let's investigate their works. Because I, I don't show partiality. Let's investigate their works. Let's replay their works back to them. He will then look at them and say, because we know he says it in, in, in Matthew 7, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. No faith relationship. I don't know how you want to stand before God. I want to stand before God hiding behind Christ. Because he's the Savior who redeems. He takes that vault of sin and empties it at the moment of faith. There is no wrath. But then Paul says something very interesting in verse 6. And it is possible to cover verses 6 through 10 in a couple of minutes. <laughs> what does he say? When God judges everybody, like, how does he do it? He says, he will render to every man according to his what? Deeds. Every man, believer and unbeliever. And then he says, to those who by first perseverance and seeking good for glory and honor and immortality, they receive eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they receive wrath and indignation. So it stands, when you read this, it, it kind of takes your breath away because you're reading this great book about justification by faith. And it seems like right here, he just said, you get into heaven by what means? Works. Works. You must understand the context. Is he talking about in chapter 2 how a person gets into heaven? No. He's talking about judgment day. What happens on judgment day? Well, we know from Paul's other writings, like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says the believer stands before the bema seat of Christ, not the great white throne of God. He stands at, before that throne at a different point in time, and he's judged not for are you going to heaven or hell. He judge, judges you based on how well did you run the race as a Christian? 
What crowns will I give you? Where will I place you in my kingdom? At that point, how you walked and ran the race for Christ matters greatly. You're going to heaven. It's just what crowns will you have to lay at the feet of Christ? To say, Lord, I, you've given these crowns to me, but I'm not worthy. They're, they're yours. What will you lay at his feet? He's not talking about how you get saved for the believer. He's merely saying if you are saved, these are the things that you just do as a believer naturally. You persevere in doing good. You look for the glory to come. You think about the honor, the immortality that lies ahead. I thought about that all this week after I kissed my sister goodbye for the last time. When she told me, I'll see you on the other side. Indeed, I shall. See, why? Well, we as siblings have made the, the determination. Christ deals with our vault of sin. Justification by faith. If you don't want to be justified by faith, then you're judged based on your works. Those who are judged by works receive tribulation and distress for all eternity. You're not vaporized. You're not annihilated. You're judged for all eternity. What is Paul saying to the Roman church here? Don't be deceived by false methods of getting into God's version of heaven. I mean, the whole time I was reading Mary Baker Eddy's uh, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, I'm thinking to myself, they misnamed this book. It's not a key to anything. It is deception through and through from the beginning of it to the end. It's incongruent logically. What she says on one hand, she takes away with the other hand. It's an unbelievable treatise on what is spiritual truth. There's a place in the internal unmentionable for people who deceive other people with false teaching. The way into God's heaven is by way of the cross. Is your vault empty, covered by the blood of Christ, or is it full? There's a song that is fun to play on the piano. It's also fun to sing. It's by Chris Rice. And it's really a song that you should probably think about the lyrics if you have a vault of sin that's never been dealt with at the, at the hand of God for you. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, because love's passing by. <laughs> you know that song? What's the lyrics say? And the, oh, the little refrain. If love's passing by, what does he say you should sing? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Live, not die. You know, you, you can look at a, at, at a sibling struggling with death and say, you just merely lay down the outer tent, but you pick up a magnificent tabernacle. Why? Because you understand love passed by and you stopped and gave attention my faith. If your vault is full, today I would say would be the day to say, God, cover my vault for me by faith, and he will make you his child, and his face shall shine upon you. Truly come to Jesus and live. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the power of the cross. You can take a sinner with a stain of sin upon them and wash that clean for all eternity to where it's not even an issue when we stand before you. Thank you for the fact that how we do live does matter as saints, that we do, we do give account one day. Might we all live to hear the words, well done, good faithful servant from you based on how we've lived for you. For those among us who don't know you, might this be the day they see love walking by and love is Christ. He's on a little donkey. He's going to go to a cross. He's going to die for their sins. Might they come to know him today in faith in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have counselors, if you would like to talk to them about a relationship with Christ, uh, located to my left, your right. 
And uh, you have a wonderful day with your family. God bless you.